Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're talking about the book Averages Over by Tyler Cowen. Tyler Cowen's a, a pretty well-known economist. Uh, he has a blog over at Marginal Revolution that's a pretty excellent blog. Yeah, he runs with this other guy, Alex uh, Tabarak, and it's a really great blog. It's so thought-provoking, and like they just put out a ton of content. Tyler is kind of a purveyor of thought nuggets, he, yeah. and, and that is a quality that you really want in a blogger, right? He finds a lot of just little interesting bits and shares them. And I think that's on display in this book. And it's on display in most of his writing. But of course, I think Ted and I don't always agree with Tyler Cowen. I think uh, his last book that was really discussed pretty widely on the internet was The Great Stagnation. And uh, we won't spend too much time on that today. But that was a book that uh, I think Ted and I pretty strongly disagreed with the, the main thesis of. Yeah, well, the framing in that book was so bizarre. Well, he posited a, a technological slowdown. That was how he chose to frame the, the situation that was sort of happening in the right, economy. The book, if you haven't read it, is about how the median, average median income uh, since the 70s has been stagnant. And his major claim in the book, the thesis of the whole book, is that that stagnation in income is caused by a stagnation in technological uh, innovation. Which, which we found to be, you know, perhaps completely backwards. But anyways, we're here to talk about his new book, yes, which, which uh, I find a, that I agree with a whole lot more. Um, not, that, not that there isn't anything I would, I would nitpick about, but I really think it's a book that jives a lot more with what I see is happening. And it's, it's called Averages Over. And it's kind of hard to boil it down into, into one thesis. I think if, if the book has one problem, it's that sometimes it feels a bit disorganized. But it's definitely about machine intelligence. I mean, I feel like that's just put right in the center of the book, uh, what's kind of happening with, with machine intelligence these days. And it kind of puts that at the, the center of a story that's about, you know, rising inequality and uh, what he calls hyper-meritocracy. And, uh, you know, averages over the title refers to, you know, essentially the hollowing out of the middle class. Right. It's sort of an admission that the middle class, as we've defined it in in the Western world, is done for, and that going forward, we're going to have a new social order, or that's basically the prediction that the book makes. You know, he grapples with the fact that technological change rather than technological slowdown is uh, apparently the driver is a major driver of this i'd say the vast majority of what's in the book is just descriptive and just feels honestly right to me uh there's a lot of just what's going on in the world today and and what these trends are uh where i think he's he's right on so let's let's talk about some of that stuff yeah i mean the, the basic starting point in the book is that these uh machines that we have these intelligent machines are creating new winners and new losers and that's you know driving this inequality, this hauling out of the middle. Right, this like bifurcated job market that we're seeing now where um, people who create software say or work with intelligent machines. Or work in management, work in management or STEM workers or finance. Like these are, are the seeing big winners. huge, yeah. huge rewards. Whereas people who uh, work in more routine jobs are seeing their jobs either disappear completely or, or their pay get cut. And so with the exception of a few areas, say like, you know, personal services for rich people, which he talks about as a growth area or sure. healthcare, which he talks about as a growth area area. Um, there's not a lot of growth in jobs in the middle, right? There's, there's some jobs, you know, un- completely unskilled jobs being created at the bottom. There's a lot of these really high reward 
people who know work, how to work with machine type jobs that right. are being created. And there's not much else for everybody else. And so he talks about the rise of this, what he calls a zero marginal product worker. I mean, somebody who basically has almost nothing to, to offer the economy. Right. And these workers are, are not even worth it to hire because uh, the time that a manager spends overseeing them isn't worth the manager's time. Which is really just, you know, it's very specific and it does seem plausible that that's the case for a lot of people, that they literally have no marginal value. Uh, They don't add anything to existing business operations. Right. And the way I understand the point is today's work is all about these, you know, really complex tasks. He describes, you know, it involves working, coordinating with large teams and working, you know, pretty high skilled labor in, in concert with these machines. And so you need highly skilled workers, but you also need to avoid you know, hiring the wrong person, because I think part of his argument is that the right person can, you know, make you more money than ever before, because their their capabilities are extended by the machines. But you hire the wrong person, and they can do so much damage compared to before for pretty much right. the same reason. I look at it as machines multiply the capabilities of all workers, the good ones and the bad ones. Right. So that just leads to, you know, really tight hiring practices where you have to and Well, it just makes hiring so much more important because every individual you hire is so much more powerful and therefore so much more valuable if they're good and so much more anti-valuable if they're terrible. He refers to like the crazy job interviews that happen at Google, you know, where they ask these really intense questions to try to pick out just the top people. Um, he talks about how like higher credentials are being increasingly demanded. The only uh, section of the population that's experiencing actually increased earnings on average are, are, I guess, you know, really advanced degrees like PhDs, MDs, MBAs. Yeah, I mean, we're looking at these numbers right here. I'm just going to read them off because they're crazy. Uh, for PhDs and other higher degrees, it's up 5%. For master's degrees, it's down 7%. For bachelor's degrees, it's down 8%. And for no four-year degree, it's down 10%. The, those are just crazy, crazy numbers to show the just inflation of uh, credential uh, requirements that's happened because it's such a buyer's market for labor. Right. And I think, you know, this is pretty much at home with the vision that's put forward by Race Against the Machine, you know, that includes the the superstar effect and the increasing value of capital versus labor. I mean, this fits into the bigger picture that I think I definitely agree with. Yeah, uh, these workers, whether they're an individual on their own or an individual at a company, they have this giant impact. So the best ones are going to do a ton of work and get re- well rewarded for it by um, tending to the machine in the most uh, helpful and useful way. And the ones who who are uh, left out are going to have very little uh, left to do. Right. He discusses like, you know, where are all the jobs today? I mean, I think he says there are jobs being created, but a lot of them are overseas or a lot of them are types of jobs that Americans are not really been prepared to take psychologically. You know, he he gives this one example, which I thought was pretty surprising, which he said three quarters of today's youth apparently are unfit to serve in the U.S. military for one reason or another. And and I I think, I don't know, most of us, I think, tend to think of the U.S. military as a place that Sort of an employer of last resort. Anybody can get work. Uh, so, but apparently that's not true anymore. So, I mean, I think all the current trends and stuff definitely bear out this vision of, of what's happening. And uh, it explains not all the unemployment we see, but it explains why we're having such a poor recovery. I, I think he describes it, again, in a way that I find I agree with, which is he says the financial crash was a very bad one-time event, right? But it revealed a like, underlying structural problem, yeah. which had been going on for a while which is that we had been overemploying workers relative to their skills. Like we had a lot of right. waste. Like we had a lot of people on the payroll that were not producing uh, what they probably could or should right. have. Right, and this is empirically sort of showable, right? Because I mean, a ton of people got laid off during the the crisis, and productivity went up. 
So clearly those people were basically a drag. Right. You're firing the people at the bottom and then productivity just goes up on the average because you're just you now exposing the only the good yeah, workers are remaining. Just, right. Yeah. Or you're just, you know, you're firing people in general and the technology that you've been buying over the last 10 years has is so good that it just picks up the slack with the remaining people. So let's talk about the man-machine um, partnership. This is one of the better things in the book, I think, right? Uh, according to Tyler, uh, there's four steps that occur um, in the evolution of the man-machine partnership in a particular job uh, sector. So right. step one is the machine hardly adds anything, right? It's just an investment in building a better machine, hopefully in the future. Right. And then step two comes along, and step two is when uh, experts can now work with the machine and, uh, and they can fill in gaps. This is when man provides a lot of uh, value and you know, expert people who know all about the domain can use the computer to do things they couldn't do without the computer. So then the third step is that now, you know, the programs are much better. Humans understand them well with, with far less expertise. And the humans become relegated to sort of just information processors. They're almost like translators between the computers and the real world. They right. kind of facilitate. They're um, just looking for glitches and correcting them. Yeah, making sure the computer gets the right data going in and that the data coming out gets read correctly and so right. on. And that's a, that's a part of the process he talks a lot about too. And that's a really interesting part of the process where... A small amount of good uh, human intervention, which he calls sort of conscientious human intervention, can add a lot of value because the computer is actually doing a lot. But uh, if you kind of have an intuitive understanding of how computers work and you can spot their mistakes and um, help them along, you can add a tremendous amount of value in a position like that. Right. These would be some of the big winners in the new economy are the people that can make themselves useful to the machine. Uh, and then the fourth step is that, of course, eventually the human is not needed much at all because the program is so strong on its own right that it just uh, can do the job with essentially no human intervention. Right. Well, and this is the part of this argument where the biggest disagreement between us and Cowan uh, emerges, which is that he seems to think that that step is far off in a lot of fields. And I tend to think it's far off in a few fields and very close in a lot of fields. And uh, he doesn't really provide much evidence for why he thinks that in the book, one way or another. He just thinks that uh, things are going to move along gradually. And, uh, you know, obviously our opinion, as we laid out in our first podcast episode, is, is that things are going to be pretty fast. So, you know, that's a difference in opinion um, about the speed of this. The way that uh, Tyler describes man-machine partnerships, which is really cool and fun to read about because he's a domain expert here, uh, and I'm not, is is in the world of computer chess. And I don't know that much about chess, but from what I read in the book, I learned about freestyle chess, which is a type of competitive chess where humans and machines play as teams. So everybody knows there's computer chess where computer programs are set to play against each other. And of course, um, we've all heard about the you know famous matches where computers play human opponents. And uh, for quite some time now, the best computers and even middling computer programs have been able to defeat the best uh, chess players in one-on-one -on -one matches. But what's happened in freestyle chess uh, is that the game's really totally changed as a result of putting humans and computers in teams together and allowing people to override the computer at will. And what they've evolved is a kind of chess that really never got played before uh, computers were invented. And that's a cool analogy for thinking about how man-machine partnerships are going to work. They're not just going to be a man-machine partnership against other men defeating all the other men. That's the obvious first step, the sort of superstar economics first step where like, you know, the man-machine partnership uh, is just better than men alone or the machine alone. 
but they're also going to be interacting with each other and, and sort of rewriting the rules of whatever it is they're doing. And that takes us into like a kind of uncomfortable, potentially creepy territory. Well, and, and it should be said that, you know, the man-machine partnerships are playing the best chess. So the, the rankings are, are pretty unambiguous in that, like, humans alone at the bottom, computers alone above them, and man-machine right now is at the top, at least for now. Although Man-machine is currently playing better chess than, yeah, than any humans or computers can play on the Although own. we can right. imagine uh, a horizon in the future where eventually the, the man won't be able to add much anymore, and that's that step four that we referred to earlier. Right. Um, but yeah, for the time being, I think this is a place that Tyler goes because it's maybe a, a, right. a sort it, of a test case for what we might see in other areas. Right. Um, and chess is a useful test case, maybe because uh, you know you can measure the results. It's a game; it has precise rules. You can it's clear who the winners are. Right, and, and what the it's a small are. enough game that they yeah. can basically calculate all the possible options. Right. So unlike really complicated games like Go or something, which are less good as AI test cases because they, they appear more random. Well, they're, they're so, beyond the machines at the time, for at, the time being. In, yeah. For the time being, right. Uh, chess is relatively computable. So it's, it's an okay test case, and it's an interesting thought experiment that he takes us on that as its part. I think, obviously, there are limitations to chess as a stand-in for all artificial intelligence because it is such a formalized system. And I mean, there's a lot of limitations, but we don't need to get into all those. He actually uses this uh, analogy, I think, really well in the book. This is my favorite part of the book, where his the way his insights um, sort of sprang from, from how freestyle chess has elevated the game of chess and also changed it into something that's really different from what it looks like when, um, when humans play each other or even when one of, some of my favorite insights are that what makes a good freestyle team is completely different right. than what makes a good chess player. This is player. one of the best things. Right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, a good chess player like Gary Kasparov or something has a certain skill set right. and a certain set of abilities. And a good freestyle player is somebody who might have five different CPOs running at a time, might be part of a team of, of chess players that are working together and is taking in information and is is able to look at the different uh, suggestions from the different computer algorithms and determine, like, what's the best one? Like, when should I ignore the computer suggestion versus when should I take the computer suggestion? They're kind of taking in all these input streams and juggling them all and then integrating them in their mind into the best decision. And that, of course, is a very different skill set. Right. Well, and to a significant extent, I think these freestyle guys' skill sets involve optimizing their hardware to the greatest degree. Uh, yes. So that they can literally get suggestions milliseconds faster than their opponents, that they can get two suggestions from two separate programs instead of one in the same amount of time, et cetera, which is like, those are IT skills. Those have almost nothing at all to do with chess. And of course, they do need to know enough chess so that they know when to distrust the computer. Sure. And they need to know enough about how each chess program chooses its results to know when it's likely to be running into trouble. Like, this is the kind of problem this program is bad at, that sort of knowledge. They need, they need to have deep knowledge of that sort, uh, but they need to have almost no knowledge of, like, for example, historical chess games. Yes, because the computer takes care of all of that for them. It has a it has an opening book, which is another thing Cowan talks about in the in the book, and it has you know its engine. So you no longer need that skill, which uh, which Gary Kasparov or somebody would be tremendous at. He talks about a little bit how it can be a detriment actually to have too much uh, built up chess intuition because that's going to make you want to follow your own 
human intuitions. Right, that's going to put you on too human a path and, and you'll and, lose. And make it harder for you to, <laughs> to actually listen to the machine when right. it's telling you. Right. Um, when, like, a major skill here is a certain amount of humility, I think, and being able to listen to the machine. Right. And, and knowing your own limitations is something Cowan talks about as being really important in the future. And that, I think, is a really interesting point. Yeah. And another related point that I really like is the idea of, um, I guess, a phrase that people say to each other in, in freestyle chess is, oh, that's a computer move. And these are the, the ugly sort of counterintuitive decisions that the computer makes. Um, the computer's operating on some inscrutable algorithm and it, you know, asks you to, you know, move some piece into a place that seems completely risky and insane. Like you would never want to put that piece out there and, and it right, seems way but it's too dangerous. more moves ahead than your human brain can see. And that's why that makes sense. Right. And so you just kind of have to take it on faith at that point that the algorithm knows what it's doing, even though you don't understand uh, where it's coming from. And right. so that well, is, and these moves yeah. now have been categorized because people have gotten used to them. So they're called computer moves, but of course people now make computer moves well, and people learn from the computer. They, so yeah, yeah cause they've, a, yeah. they've seen these games. Now they've become part of the, um, the historical record that, that people can use to play. And, and both of those things I think are interesting to think about in the job market, just that, uh, you know, again, the people that are going to be well-employed and making good money are not the usual experts. Again, like the, let's take the medical field, which is something that Tyler talks about. Right. Um, the best doctors in the future may not be like the doctors of today who have like a lot of knowledge and intuition about symptoms and different situations built up over their careers. The best doctors of the future might be these people that can, you know, take, they have the most trust in the computer yeah. and the least trust in their own intuitions. Well, but, and they can uh, ask 20 different computers the right questions right. and then, and then collate that information in a sensible fashion and then, right. and then weight it properly and, and, you know, just perform essentially these IT tasks, right? Right. Well, and just like, yeah, the ones who know the programs in and out and know the program's limitations. I mean, one of the things that is, I think, correct and interesting about the way Cowan uh, envisions the world is that he envisions these technological <laughs> solutions are going to be uh, working, but imperfect. And I think that's that's usually right. That's usually the way that technological solutions come out. And so they are going to be uh, useful and better than humans alone, but they're going to have their own brittleness and their own quirks because they're not going to be you know, fully fluid human level intelligence. They're going to be just some useful amount of AI. And knowing those quirks and knowing having some intuition about uh, or, or just you know, some, um, some knowledge about when to trust the machine more versus less and having that correlate somewhat with reality, you know, and not just be your own, your own biases, uh, will be tremendously valuable. Right. And, and again, these computer moves are going to be rather opaque. And it's fun to think about that, like Tyler kind of uh, brings up the fun thought experiment of sort of taking that into the social domain of like, if you have AI that's sort of, you know, involved, say, in your dating life, that's telling you to make some bizarre move on a date that feels risky or not like it's going to pay off or... Uh, tells you to do something really risky, like sell your house or, you know, move to a different state or uh, that this, you know, it's found the perfect match for you online, which is somebody like that's completely outside who you thought you wanted. And so the computer is going to make these suggestions that are based on the algorithm that are going to violate your own human intuitions. And and yet it might be in your own interest to trust the algorithm. Um yeah. And I, so, I don't know. I think that's an interesting thing to think about. I mean, you, you, like... Yeah, I mean, dating obviously is not like chess in the sense that uh, there are no reasonable criteria for success in dating. Well, it's I not mean, as easy to evaluate success. It's, it's extremely difficult. And uh, obviously, people's intuitions about 
dating are arguably pretty bad. So beating them with a computer might not be that hard. But I think these algorithms are going to be, but, you know, everything from from dating to like what music you should listen to, to how you should manage your finances. Like right, they will right, be right. making these kinds of suggestions. Well, and you can see some examples of that already. I mean, some algorithms that work really well to suggest things are like the uh, uh, the Amazon algorithm that knows everything you've ever bought is tremendously good at at suggesting things you might like, you know. I, I mean, I think it may know your own preferences better than you. Uh, it, it, I think that's very possible. I mean, with all the right. human biases that we have. Sure, so. exactly. Well, and that's another thing I want to bring up. I want to talk about uh, Cowan's got four lessons from the freestyle approach that he that he puts at the end of this man machine section. And uh, one of them is that human computer teams are the best. The next is that the person working the smart machine doesn't have to be an expert in the task at hand, which we just talked about. The third is that below a certain level of skill adding a man to the machine will make the team less effective. They'll become a drag. And the last one is that knowing one's limits is more important than it used to be, which we were also talking about a minute ago. Um, and I, what I think is interesting about that is, number, first, number one and number three sort of contradict each other. Um, the human computer teams are only the best teams when you have that person above that critical level <laughs> skill. And once you get to that fourth step in the evolution of uh, the machine intelligence for this task, uh, there isn't going to be any human being left that that's not a drag on the system. So human computer teams are the best teams for now uh, in that step three moment. And I get that Cowan thinks that step three moment is going to last a really long time, but I'm not so sure that it is. Right. Uh, I think you and I tend to view the man-machine partnership as a very interesting stop on the way to what will ultimately be just full-on machine intelligence in a large variety of tasks. Right, right. Well, and it's, it's interesting in that the man's role shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and the machine's role grows and grows and grows even during the time of the partnership and then eventually the partnership is not a partnership anymore right <laughs> it really depends on the domain here i mean computer chess is an example where it's a uh, competitive and it's also somewhat like aesthetic in the sense that there can always be sort of a better game of chess there's no ceiling right there's you're no just, ceiling you're just trying to outsmart the other opponent and so it's it's in a continual arms race potentially exactly however there are a lot of things where all that the machine has to reach is good enough and really any additional improvement over good enough is of no value um and so that's one way that chess is not maybe the best analogy for real-world problems that are going to get solved by machine intelligence. They're going to reach a level where the computer is good enough that you no longer need a man. And even if a man does make the machine work better, uh, it's not going to be economically viable to hire that person. Like, for example, you could think about uh, cars. I mean, it's clear that we'll get to a point with self-driving cars where just having a man meddling might just drag it down. Now, in the area of competitive car racing, right. uh, it may be true that uh, a man-computer-car partnership will continue to push the envelope And I uh, look further forward further. to going to freestyle NASCAR in the future. That's an awesome idea. Sure. Uh, but uh, I want to bring up a real-world example, yeah. uh, which is not a competition, which is autopilot for airplanes, right? Autopilot for airplanes has been around for a while, a lot longer than autopilot for cars, and it's widely deployed. It's used in America uh, after takeoff and before landing, um, but for a variety of reasons, it's not used uh, at takeoff and landing. And they've done studies on this, and the studies that they've done show that the man-machine partnership is actually worse than either the man or the machine on their own 
because there are a lot of cognitive biases that come into play and the men actually tend to overtrust the machines and not take over when they need to. Uh, that seems to be the way that the particular study that I saw went. Although, you know, there's a lot of different biases that could potentially create this sort of problem. But you can imagine when you only feel half responsible, then that may lead you to sort of be half Half vigilant, right? Exactly. Half vigilant. And, you know, that lack of conscientiousness is going to be a real problem in the future, according to Cowan. And I think it's caused some degree by man machine partnerships. The more you rely on the machine, the less present mind you get lulled into complacency. Exactly. And they've seen this with airline pilots. They've seen that requiring the pilot to be present the whole time. Obviously, these are highly skilled uh, airline pilots, so they're good at flying. They do a fine job flying the plane. uh, And they can have them lay back and just uh, let the machine fly and the machine can fly the plane too. But uh, when the machine tries to hand off to them, that's when they have problems. And so I think, you know, that's a situation where we haven't had autopilot that long in airplanes. We're already past stage three (laughs) and the pilots are no longer meaningfully, you know, putting, they're basically a drag at this point on the technology. Uh, so that's one example of where I think we've already gotten to stage four. They're an emergency backup essentially is what they are. They're currently a backup, right. And they're arguably not even the best kind of backup, although I'm not sure about that. I'm no expert on that. That's an example of somewhere where I think, you know, Cowan is is remiss to not address uh, something like that and say why he thinks that's not going to be the more common way for things to go rather than um, the way that freestyle chess went, where it's, you know, been stuck in this uh, stage three for a long time, which I think is largely driven by the fact that there's no ceiling to how great of a game of chess you can play. And that's true of some things in the world, but it's not true of a lot of things. I mean, most engineering doesn't work that way. If the bridge holds, the bridge holds. If the building stands, the building stands. I mean, it's true. It, it, it's true almost by definition in highly competitive, highly deep competitive games. Things. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, it's probably true like in finance, right? Where again, that's sure. a highly competitive sort of game with winners no and losers. No yeah. of money that's too much money to make on a trade or something. Right. When well, you're always <laughs> trying to edge out other right. people because, you know, there's a so finite... So it's not, it's not without any real yeah. world analog. We're not saying that, but I do think it's <coughs> it's limited in, in the kinds of things that it actually represents well. It's not, it doesn't represent everything well. We're going to move on, I think, to sure. some other smaller points that Cowan makes. We're going to go through quickly. Um, so he describes what uh, he calls the help menu of life. And this is one of his points that I thought was sort of interesting, but not that something that I really completely bought. Um, and he talks about how, you know, uh, machines like a very literal, uh, easy to understand world that they can uh, extract data from, right? And so he talks about, you know, the possibility that we might essentially remake our environments um, in such a way that they're almost stupider so that it's easier for the machines to get around. I, I just don't think we're going to do that. I think... Seems like we're making the machines smarter so that they can get around better in our world in our a lot faster yeah. than we're doing the opposite thing. I'm not saying there won't be any, like, QR codes printed on things or, you know, a small increase in flat surfaces or something in building designs, but I don't think this is going to be a major trend. It seems like a kind of a silly prediction. Although he does talk about something that is happening now that's contributing to... We didn't all learn to read punch code. We just taught the machines how to print, you know? Yes, but one related point that I do agree with, which is just something that's happening now and obviously eating into some of uh, the employment opportunities for people is... uh, businesses offloading work, not just onto machines, but onto consumers, right? Which is where the help menu analogy comes from, which right. is that- that's an interesting you know, thing. Self-checkout and that sort of thing. Self-checkout where it's ATMs. like- ATMs. Yeah, the machine's doing some of the work and then the remaining work is not even being done by employees, it's being done by customers, which is, uh, so now the customers are actually competing with the employees, which is an, an interesting dynamic. 
Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic, um, especially because I think it really varies widely by specific thing. For example, an ATM, I straight up prefer to interacting with a bank employee. For 99% of my banking, I would rather just deal with the machine. And I don't feel like it's at all a burden. For some reason, self-checkout in a grocery store where I have to bag my own groceries all of a sudden feels like I'm doing someone else's job. And like if there's a choice of a human line, I'll take the human line. Or like if there's two stores and one store is all kiosks and the other one has human baggers, I'll go for the baggers. Now, if robots were doing it, I think I wouldn't think twice. So it's not like I'm doing it because I want to employ humans. But the uh, the experience, I think, is actually different in that case, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, there's definitely areas where that has you nothing can, to do with his point. I just thought that was interesting. There's areas where you can more easily uh, convince the customers that this is a a good thing, I think, than others. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think for some in some areas it actually is a good thing, and in other cases it's more of a cost saving measure. Um, another small, well, actually, you know, I wouldn't say this is small because this is actually, I think, much more central to a part of his thesis, which is he uses this term a lot, hyper meritocracy, and I think part of where that's okay, coming yeah. from is he talks about. Uh, I guess you could say Yelp ratings for everything in the future and that, you know, the way that we have Yelp ratings now for restaurants, we're going to have Yelp ratings for all kinds of professions uh, such as lawyers and doctors. And it's going to give, you know, consumers a lot more, you know, completely up to date information on uh, people's success rates. And right, uh, right. But it's not just consumer reviews that he's talking about. Right. It's also internal evaluations are going to be, uh, he says, like enforced oppressively. So Basically, you know, your value to the company uh, as an employee down to the dollar is going to be easily calculable and you're going to they're going to be able to tell, you know, exactly what you're worth to them. Uh, and of course, they're going to use this information ruthlessly. Right. Well, it's great for um, two people. It's great for employers and it's great for consumers. And it's it's not so great for uh, people working in these professions. It will lead to rewards for the best workers. I wouldn't say it's actually good for them because they were still probably better off when they weren't being scrutinized so deeply. But some people it won't harm, although it might lead to work cultures being really just paranoid and awful. Um, and he does he does sort of touch on that, I think. Well, yeah, when you have um, quantifiable measures, then people start to game those systems. I mean, I mean, this is a well-known phenomenon that happens. I mean, it's the same reason right. that you get cops trying to meet quotas by, you know, pulling over a certain number of people for speeding tickets per day. Like, anytime oh, you absolutely. set the incentive at a, at a specific number, then uh, you get some weird behavior sometimes in response to right. that. Well, and I think you know, with the amount of sensors and data and computing power that we have available, now it remains to be seen what these systems will be designed like, so they could be um, designed terribly, but if they're designed well, they might be able to use so many different variables that they can chase out the gaming, or they might be able to change their variables fast enough to stay ahead of it, at least, because it is an arms race sort of thing. And um, companies are going to have a strong incentive if they can do this to do it. And it's interesting because it will potentially make working into just like a much more stressful experience along with, I mean, this would be another thing along with the hyper competition and the just reduction in number of jobs uh, generally. And the fact that uh, computer technology is always encroaching on all the jobs that are left. It'd just be like one more thing. But again, on the consumer side, I think it's a pretty a good thing. I mean, it, 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 it's going to demystify lawyers and doctors and yeah. give you pretty detailed information on how good they actually are. And so you're going to hopefully have access to that knowledge when you're making a decision. Right. And well, and that'll accelerate this superstar economics thing where more and more of the best partnerships or the best people will rise to the top and the rest will uh, 
The rest will have to lower their prices. They'll have to lower their prices. So you might uh, potentially to the point where they can't provide the service anymore. Right. Which is good. You know, I mean, if you only have money for a second rate lawyer, uh, you know, that's the one you'll hire. But um, at least you'll know what you're getting. Right. Right. You might at least get better price transparency, if not better service. Another issue that he does uh, deal with later in the book that's not so much about machine intelligence is just uh, the issue of outsourcing. And uh, he basically says at this point, um, it's pretty hard to argue that outsourcing isn't a significant factor in um, what's happening in the economy right now uh, and in the the difficulties in the job market. Yeah, he concedes that outsourcing, and this is hard for him because he's an avowed conservative who believes that outsourcing is a good thing to do. He he concedes that it is not helping. But he also says uh, that, you know, on a moral level, a job for a foreign person is, is no better or worse than a job for an American. And, um, uh, and he also concedes, which is, I think, rarely conceded by political conservatives, that if you want to stop outsourcing, you should be a proponent of more immigration because they are in direct uh, competition with one another. Uh, Low-wage um, immigrant workers are exactly the people who can keep jobs from going overseas by keeping them cheap enough. Yeah, if we want to uh, stop outsourcing or at least like, uh, you know, mitigate the effects of it, then we should be more liberal on our immigration policies. And yeah. I, I certainly agree with that. That is a that's an if then thing. And I yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think that's a good, you know, logically consistent thing uh, to hear coming from somebody who is uh, so politically conservative and therefore, you know, inclined to to agree with the right wing party line on that stuff. But even though he talks about outsourcing as a problem, he's pretty optimistic about uh, America over the long term. And he does talk about the phenomenon of reshoring. And this does connect to the machine intelligence point because, uh, you know, as we sort of, you know, remove the workers from the factories and the right. plants. Um, you then know, all the, of a sudden the cost incentives change. Transportation becomes a much bigger part of the cost. And it starts to make sense to put the factory here. Uh, if all you need are a few engineers to design the robots and some maintenance people instead of a whole factory's worth of workers, uh, you may as well have your factory in Texas. And we still have a ton of technical know-how, obviously, here in the in the in North America. So yes. it, it makes sense that uh, that may work in our favor. Right. So he brings up a point toward the end of the book that I've heard elsewhere, but it's really interesting, so we'll bring it up. It's the end of average science is the name of the chapter, and it, it's about how uh, science that's done primarily by uh, machine intelligence is going to get to a point where it's not even really comprehensible by human scientists. And we'll be receiving information from sort of black box, incomprehensible machine uh, science researchers. And that the, the role of a scientist in that world is going to be different. It's going to be somebody who, you know, reads what the machine creates and then makes it understandable uh, to the greatest possible degree by regular people. Yeah, he said something about how the top scientists might end up being people who who don't actually know, in quotes, but rather who hold shadowy outlines of the truth in their head. So, I mean, right. he talks about the sort of the death of the elegant explanatory theory like general relativity or uh, natural selection that uh, is, you know, pretty understandable by the layperson. Right. And, uh, you know, he's talking about it's going to be at this sort of algorithmic, opaque uh, level where, you know... And he talks about increasingly... Yeah, the science yeah. done by intelligent machines might very well be dirty science that works you know it might be uh very hard to understand but it might just function and therefore be presumed correct that is a really interesting idea and it's one that uh, again uh, shows these four steps that he outlines and he shows uh, what happens when we get to that fourth step and the human can no longer add meaningful input to the process and and so yeah there'll be people who are engaged in science 
But essentially what they'll be doing is like reading the machine oracle, trying to figure out what it meant. Right. So anyways, at the very end of the book, he starts to kind of tie all this together and make his actual near future predictions of, you know, how is this all going to play out? This rising inequality, this hyper meritocracy, these sort of man-machine partnerships that uh, represent, you know, the major winners in the job market. And what does this look like? And uh, it's a pretty bleak view. Right. Well, one thing that he does that I'm very grateful for is he, uh, because I'm always asking this whenever we read something like this. He gives you a number of how many people he thinks can actually be employed in this new successful man-machine partnership era. And this is something, I mean, uh, McAfee and Brynjolfsson also propose, they call it racing with the machine, but it's the same thing. These man-machine partnerships as the way out of our problem with technological unemployment. And our issue with that when we read their book was, yeah, but for how many people and Cowan gives us a number. Now, I don't know really how he got his number. He doesn't exactly say. I think it's just like, and you know, extrapolation from now. Like where but he extrapolates and he, he, he comes up with a number. Yeah. And he guesses we're talking about 10 to 15% of the U.S. population. That's what we're talking about well, here. Well, that are extremely wealthy and have comfortable lives right. and are and you're, you know, somehow so working with the machines well. Yeah. The current top 1% or something expands but to about 10 to 15% of the population. But then the flip side of that is everybody else, you know, the, uh, the people who are in the middle and the people who are in the bottom are going to fall down into a much lower income bracket. Right. And I think, you know, they'll be hustling and, and doing some kind of work. I mean, we're not saying that they'll be unemployed. I mean, I, no, I they might Tyler be partially employed. Uh, this is, again, this is his, yeah. His, they'll be trying to make rich people's lives His better. prediction. They'll <laughs> be partially some, yeah. employed being, yeah, servants to the rich or they'll be... Um, hustling, doing some kind of part-time work, or they'll be, um, you know, trying to claw their way up with all of the cheap education that'll be available, or they're maybe just, you know, they're not ambitious and they're just taking advantage of all the cheap, you know, uh, things that are available and just sort of staying at the bottom. And maybe their quality of life is not particularly terrible. I mean, some of the funnier parts of the book that I disagree with more are where he sort of like dismissively says like, oh, well, maybe we'll just build a favela in America. And, I, you know, I think that's absurd. I don't think we're going to do that. But I definitely could see us living in smaller apartments in bigger cities and just sort of having more time on the Internet and basically having like a less good quality of life than we're currently used to. I think, you know, that's not crazy. Right. And I, and I think he, you know, he sort of makes the more extreme example just to sort of push you. Well, that's that's part of a larger point about housing, which is that, you know, where something's got to give, uh, what, right, are, right, what right. are these people going to give up? And I think an area that people are probably spending too much money right. now. If 10 to 15% of the population become millionaires, essentially, or equivalent to today's millionaires, then everybody else falls into what we would call like lower middle class or below, basically, then something's going to have to give because, you know, he talks about this. He talks about there are structural reasons in our country why we're not likely to raise taxes very much. And if we raise them at all, we'll probably raise them on the poor as much as we do on the rich. And I think those are both true statements. And he also talks about why we're not that likely to do major cuts to entitlements, whether or not that well, would that's be a good old idea. People will get their way, is what it's he because says. Right? Old people we're not are cut a powerful security or political thing. Medicare, right? Yeah. And he thinks we might cut Medicaid, but you know, maybe we will, maybe we won't. But we're not going to make huge cuts to entitlements because of old people, essentially being a powerful constituency. And so if you can't raise taxes much and you can't cut benefits much and you've got all these new poor people who are going to need assistance, then there's going to be a shortfall. That, I think, is absolutely right. Now, what he predicts is that the shortfall is going to come out of wages 
and the burdens are going to be shifted to the workers. And then another thing is that it'll come out of land rents that um, that people are going to move into cheaper housing. And this is something, again, we're seeing this happening already. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of land, if we're talking about the U.S. here, and not a lot of it's being used efficiently. And uh, there's a lot of new housing technology that we have even now in 2014 that's not being exploited. And uh, there's no reason that we couldn't house uh, a lot of people a lot more cheaply. And so that does now, I right. don't know. It's if- a lot about preferences. People live in large houses <clears throat> and they don't live in multi you know, multi-unit dwellings as much as they do in other parts of the world. Now, Cowan's particular but vision no reason of, why that can't change. of uh, Brazil-like shanty towns in Texas uh, is is not necessarily how uh, I think you and I see this playing out. But uh, you know, obviously, short no, of and I, that I have extreme a suspect, vision, I suspect there's that even other ways for him, that this could play out, right? Like yeah, there's yeah. other um, other ways to uh, get cheaper housing to people. Um, right. And to well, make up I mean, some of this. the obvious yeah. way that there is to get cheaper housing to people that we've done in this country many times before is that the government subsidizes it. And there's just a this book is pretty transparent in the sense that he admits that he's got a conservative political agenda uh, in the book and that he's trying to uh, lay out something of a conservative vision. Uh, so that's not part of the conservative vision, but it's totally a viable solution. Um, and it sounds a lot more likely to me than building favelas in Texas which is insane. One portion of his vision is that, you know, the services that people get, say the healthcare services, Mm -hmm. uh, he argues that we're going to be promised a lot more on paper, but that the actual quality of the services that you receive are really just going to be worse. Um, Now, of course, they're going to be augmented by all this new uh, machine intelligence, which I think might uh, be the one saving grace for some of these very poor people. Right, right. So you, you may get worse services uh, in the sense that you may get uh, less face time with a human being, but we're not actually sure that that'll result in worse service, uh, worse quality. Uh, that That's going to be more dependent on, on how good the technology is. Yeah, the uh, medical version of the, you know, super help menu. Dr. Watson, Of right? the future uh, is, might uh, make up some of this shortfall too. He doesn't, I mean, he doesn't actually put those points together himself in the book, and I'm not sure why, but it's sort of a logical thing you can conclude from the first half and the second half of his book, which is that, like, some of this shortfall will be made up for with the machine intelligence right. just doing well, the he, work. Yeah, yeah, this is not synthesized in the book, but it's all there. Early in the book, he talks about, like, an RN working with, um, you know, a Dr. Watson type thing, you know, like the, the Watson... Uh, you know, software program that won Jeopardy, they're teaching it medical diagnosis. This is something that's yeah. happening. So when that Dr. Watson program goes online and it's working with a, an RN who has some human intuition and knows what questions to ask and maybe knows how the system works, this is early in the book, that person's going to be able to provide a lot of value and maybe be better than a, than a regular doctor. Uh, so if that's who you can see because now you're on, you know, cheapo insurance plan, uh, that only lets you go to the uh, Walmart clinic, and that's what they have at the Walmart clinic. Well, is that going to be worse than what we have for doctors now? It's actually not clear to me that it will be. Although I do remember that he does express skepticism about that. I forgot this because he talks about how regulated the medical industry is. And, uh, you know, for example, like surgery even, which is, you know, not just uh, diagnosis, which is something that Watson could do for you through your phone. But, right. you know, even surgery could be a lot cheaper if we had, you know, different, you know, ways for people to get accredited and if we were you know remote surgery can be done now you can be getting surgery performed on you from somebody in india a doctor in india could do it yeah so um you know but there's obstacles because it's such a highly regulated field that of course you have to make all that legal 
so that people can get those services at a, at a cheaper rate. So right. That's and that problem. is a legitimate thing to complain about. I think there's massive overregulation in, in medicine, especially where new technologies are concerned. I mean, we don't need to go super into it, but there's that recent 23andMe thing. And But anyway, the last thing that uh, I wanted to mention here is um, that uh, he suggests we'll pay our way out of debt by spending less money on junk and wasteful consumption. And uh, that's, uh, I think, really funny and very much a conservative fantasy. My, my opinion about that is we're not going to pay our way out of debt at all. Uh, and that we won't need to. And right? that we won't need to. And that, like, to the extent that our debt to GDP ratio, which is, I'm sure <laughs> what he really means, is going to go down a little because like, we'll, our spending won't rise as fast as inflation does. I mean, I think that's maybe true because we have sort of a conservative um, government in place these days, but uh, but that's not the same thing. And it's not going to have anything to do with wasteful consumption. It's just going to have to do with the normal um, inflation of money and, uh, and just uh, the fact that spending isn't going up the way uh, it may be used to. Um, so that, that I thought was sort of a funny moment where Tyler, who's usually pretty clear-eyed, sort of let his politics get, get in his eyes. Uh, you know, pro- He's one of these people who thinks that our current debt level is unsustainable. And I just think that if you look at world history, it appears like that debts never go down. They just go up and up and money inflates to make up the difference. Well, and, and also, <laughs> I mean, if you, again, like Tyler is somebody with a linear view of technological progress. And if you're right. more in our camp where you see an accelerating change. Right. There's going to be so much wealth creation the wealth in the future. by some of these yeah. machine intelligence It's going to just wipe out these debts. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. if you, you know, imagine a Dr. Watson, even that just that's on your phone, that's smarter than any doctor on the planet. Uh, I mean, this, some of these things, when they really come online, and I have no idea when they will, could drive costs so low, so fast, that that alone could pay off a lot of this debt. Right. So. Well, it'll just make it irrelevant. It'll completely change the value structure of, of so much of our economy. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I think a lot of, we kind of have this get out of everything he's worried about card that is, we believe in a, a technological acceleration, and he dismisses it out of hand. He doesn't really explain why he doesn't believe that it's happening, uh, but he doesn't uh, buy it. And I think the final peg to uh, Tyler's view of the future is that there won't be a revolution. So Right, not dis- in the United States despite anyway. Despite all of this uh, yeah. massive inequality that he sees, despite right. uh, 15% being, you know, incredible millionaires and the rest of the people, you know, potentially living in these gigantic housing projects and barely scraping by, um, but with free Wi-Fi. But with free Wi-Fi, yeah. Let them uh, watch internet, he says. Yeah. With apparently no irony. <laughs> well, he's quoting someone. I mean, he, you know, he, it's weird. He doesn't, like, actually own uh, this vision as something that he wants. He just kind of describes it as something that'll happen. Um, and, you know, he talks about how Yeah, this- he talks about it with inevitability rather than with a this should be. <clears throat> Sort of tone, which is um, a great debate tactic. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know. But I, I think it does betray his political preferences. And I think, you know, he's partially writing the book to convince us that this, you know, hyper meritocracy, as he calls it, where. Well, he says that will be you know, the counter argument to the inequality, that that's how people will justify it, right? Right. right. He's, yeah, he seems to be outlining the argument that the future super yuppie will make as to why he's not responsible for all of the suffering in the country. And they're going to reference his book when they make this argument. They're going to say, well, this, you know, this is how this is. Tyler Cowan says it. And uh, he's he's very sort of, yeah, he distances himself from it a bit in the book. He doesn't come straight out and say, this is my preferred vision. He just sort of um, discusses it with like a weary 
certainty that it can't be any other way. But you no know. one's going to revolt, you know, because, uh, well, first of all, it's not clear how they even could, I guess, when you have... He doesn't He doesn't address that, though. He says they won't because they're too comfortable, basically, right? It's essentially their issue. Yeah, I mean, he's saying that people I, I tend to agree with him that we yeah. won't revolt, but I agree with him for a different reason, which is that the uh, killer robots would obviously win, right? Well, the top 15% that are the top 15% because they own all the machines and are good at using them will clearly win any battle. And I mean, he does deal with yeah. the fact that a, a 15% a top 15% instead of a stop, top 1% is a consolidation of power among the elite that would be, you know, difficult to say he talks about putting taxes over on them would be difficult. But, you know, it'd also right. be difficult to say overthrow them. Right. <laughs> it like, would be difficult to challenge their dominance at right. all. Like, you know, <clears throat> elites of much smaller numbers have managed to maintain their dominance for long periods of time. So uh, a larger elite with better technological skills is going to be obviously... Very difficult to unseat. Yeah. His argument is that people will allow it because of a few spectacular, well-publicized cases of poor people bootstrapping their ways into this elite group through all the free education and the, you know, the low barriers to entry that happen in this um, libertarian paradise that he's describing. And it's, um, you know, it's a compelling vision. Like I, I can imagine a world that works like that. It doesn't seem crazy to me. And the, the premises of this book don't seem crazy in the way that the premise of Great Stagnation seemed crazy. Uh, so I think this book is much better. Than By the way, the free education is, is an online education becoming widespread, which is something that we that it's touched on in the book that sure. we didn't mention earlier. Yeah, but, it's touched yeah. on the book. It's not a big point. He just talks about MOOCs and that sort of thing and how the best students weren't from Stanford, you know. And so the, he extrapolates from that uh, the idea that People, when you're living in your uh, shanty town, right. you'll have with your free wireless. You can have access if you to Harvard education. Yeah, super uh, self-starting, and somehow figure out that that's what you should do. You can put yourself through a an elite education and catapult yourself uh, into the class of people who are educated. And you know, uh, we'll see. I guess how successful that is for people. But as long as it continues to be successful for a small number of well-publicized people, I think he's right that that will be enough to convince people that this is still a, um, a land of opportunity. Anyway, I think this book is uh, so much better than Great Stagnation, and it's really an interesting read, even though obviously there are many things in it that I think are there to be just controversial, um, and then there are things that we disagree with for whatever reason. And it's loaded with the thought nuggets that you will typically find on his blog. I mean, every, right, so if every you enjoy page those, has some interesting little idea. So Yeah, it's, it's yeah. just like a huge collection of, of things that will spin your brain out thinking. So even if you find yourself violently disagreeing with it as I did at times, you'll probably still enjoy reading it and I can recommend it. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.